0: Yes, of course. Burl Barron. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to America's premier true crime podcast. I am the legendary Burl Bear, next to me co-host and esteemed fact checker, Mike C.G. Boyer. uh, Yeah. Produced by magic Matt Allen. You were talking with Fred Rosen. I was not talking to Fred Rosen a couple weeks ago because he passed away about a year ago. Ah! Awesome. I was talking with Greg Olson. Greg Olson. Yeah. And something interesting. I mentioned Fred Rosen because well, when my folks used to say things like, honey, remember 20 years ago when we did such and such, I used to think to myself, that's impossible. How can they say, remember 20 years ago? Well, well now I'm old enough to say, you know, it was about 20 years ago <laughs> that I went to the World Mystery Convention, BoucherCon, and it was held, I believe, in Seattle, Washington, which made it very convenient. And that's where I met my first true crime authors. And the authors I met were Fred Rosen. And that's when Fred had hair, a whole head full of hair. And he'd he write true crime for a while, and it all falls out from stress. And the other guy I met was Gary C. King. Now, uh, Fred had just come out with Lobster Boy. But I met Gary C. King. And I remember distinctly, I think i maybe mentioned this on the show before, we're riding in a bus... From uh, one point in the conference to another, he's sitting behind me, and I happened to mention that I was going to be doing a serious true crime book for Kensington Publishing uh-huh. about a case in Alaska. And I told him about it. This guy murders his aunt and the two little kids. It's a really horrifying story. He said, Burl, a couple things you got to know about writing true crime. Be prepared to cry a lot, because you're going to have to be with the families of these murdered people it's going to be really stressful and horrifying. And you know what? He was right. He was absolutely right. Uh, gave me some good advice, too, around uh, the whole process of true crime. Well, you were correct. We were talking to Greg uh, Olson uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about Gary uh, King, and he said, well, where where is he? I mean, I'm going to spend a bit on the air, maybe just, you know, during the break or whatever. And uh, both of us had tried to get a hold of Gary in the last year or so, and uh, we just weren't having any luck. His, his website was down, his blog was down, uh, hadn't heard from him. And uh, even when he was on our show, which was uh, about three years ago, I guess, uh, he seemed reticent to do it. He says, I don't do that anymore. I don't, I don't do publicity anymore. And I said, oh, come on, Gary. It's me, Burl." He goes, yeah, you're right. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have to twist his arm too much because we go back a long way. And I think that was the last uh, radio interview the guy did. Turns out, I found out from David Lohr, who's also been on the show, he sent me Gary C. King's obituary. Huh? Gary C. King died in 2019. Huh? And we didn't know about it. All his other true crime buddies are going, where is he? I can't find him. Well, that answers that question. I used to call him the king of true crime, which I thought was amusing because we all agreed that Jack Olson was the true king of true crime, but Gary King had the name. We suggested maybe I could be the queen of true crime, but that didn't sound too good. Uh, He was a freelance author, lecturer. He had published more than 400 articles in true crime magazines in the U.S., Canada, U.K., also the author of uh, many true crime books, including Bloodlust, Portrait of a Serial Killer, Driven to Kill, Web of Deceit, Blind Rage, Savage Vengeance with Don Lasseter, who's been on the show also. An Early Grave, Texas 7, Murder in Hollywood, Angel of Death, Stolen in the Night, Love, Lies, Murder, and Almost Perfect Murder. Came out in 2008. Uh, and he was working on a book about Robert Willie Picton, the Canadian pig farmer, turned serial murderer. And that did come out. Uh, as did a, another version of that same book by, uh, uh, what's your name, up in Canada? A book called On the Farm. Uh... The very first true crime book I read was by Gary C. King. Which one? And I believe it was Bloodlust. Uh, that's not the title. You remember the uh, guy's name was Dayton Rogers, Dayton Leroy Rogers. He was known in Portland, Oregon as a respectable businessman, devoted husband, and father. But at night, he abducted women, forced them into sadistic bondage games. And those aren't card games, ladies and gentlemen. He thrilled in their pain, terror, and mutilation. His murderous spree was stopped only after, in plain view, he slashed to death his final victim. And when a hunter accidentally stumbled onto the burial grounds of seven other women, Rogers had killed one by one out in the forest. Police realized they were dealing with a serial killer. Shocking true story. Horrifying crimes. As this was my first true crime book I ever read. I was shocked by the murder weapon. This man used primarily to kill his victims, his penis. Mm-hmm. Now, you may say that's unusual. He'd force his women, he'd kidnap him, kick him out in the woods, force them to have sex. And The sex he forced them to have is what is commonly known in the trade as 69. He's performing oral sex on them, they're performing oral sex on him. At which time, he would pinch their nose closed and thrust and they couldn't breathe, and they would die from suffocation because their nose is blocked and their mouth is full. And none of them bit it off. But... Well, they were too busy trying to breathe. And plus, the fact, he would have the upper hand, shall we say. And, of course, in death, they would release the urine, etc., which is, he thought that was a bonus, apparently. So that was the strangest damn thing I would I read in my life, I went, my God, this is the kind of stuff I'm going to be writing. The next uh, true crime book I read was about the guy in Alaska who had a bakery, and he would kidnap uh, women that were working up there in brothels, take them out and uh, run for your life. He'd take them out in the woods and then hunt them like animals. There's some really strange people out there, Mark. (coughs) There's one in this room. (laughs) well, I'm not that strange. You must be talking about, anyway, Gary C. King wrote a heck of a lot of good books. And if you're not familiar with him, I think out of respect to Gary, I'll give you some of the books he's written, uh, the titles, multiple titles in some cases, and the plots. If you haven't read them, I suggest you do. Uh, That one that I was just talking about is uh, Bloodlust. Driven to Kill. Now, that's the true story of Wesley Allen Dodd. I'm sure you've heard that name. His victims were too small to fight back, and they were too young to die. They were kids. By all appearances, 29-year-old Wesley Allen Dodd was the perfect all-American boy. Model high school student, camp counselor, U.S. Navy enlistee. But behind his mask of normalcy lurked a predatory sex fiend with a 17-year history of appalling acts of molestation and violence. Children were his victims. And the parks and playgrounds in the Pacific Northwest were per- was his personal hunting ground. September 4th, 1989... Well, he abducted, tortured, and killed two young boys in Vancouver, Washington. Undetected despite his record, Dodd killed a third innocent victim only weeks later near Portland. Only when he was caught trying to kidnap a kid from a local movie theater, he was finally taken into custody. He confessed immediately. He was convicted on all three counts and sentenced to death. Great book by Gary C. King even has exclusive interviews with Dodd himself. An excerpt from his own chilling diary of death. Horrifying story for true crime fans is a must-read. To Die For, originally published as Blind Rage, and that follows the FBI's search for and the capture of Darren D. O'Neill, a serial killer that I hadn't heard about previously, whose ability to change his appearance kept him out of reach of the authorities. Real shapeshifter, this guy could totally change how he looked. Now, he was a deadly hunk. I mean, for women with a yen for macho men, this guy seemed to be perfect. He was strong, handsome, smooth talking, tattoos adding to his masculine aura. And he uh, came on as a rugged outdoorsman looking for a mate. But he was a nightmare. He was savage, sexually violent. He wound up on the FBI's most wanted list. Bone-chilling, true story of a twisted killer whose masterful ability to change his appearance confounded authorities again and again in a mother's agonizing search for her missing daughter. Story two of the brilliant police work and startling psychic detection that teemed with the family's outrage to finally bring him to justice. Another great book by Gary C. King, they're all good books. Shocking, true story. This book was retitled Murder in Room 305, a shocking true story of sex, greed, and cold blooded murder. Veteran true crime author Gary King again spins a gripping real life tale of a woman caught in a deadly web of lust and violence. A riveting story of love gone terribly, tragically wrong. Catherine Ann Martini graduated from Yale with a bright future in the banking biz. She was young, beautiful, ambitious. She had everything going for her until she met Michael David Lissy sleazy proprietor of a scuba diving school who was a coke addict and consorted with pimps, prostitutes, and other people that I know quite well. Burned out and broke, he had nothing going for him. Then he met Catherine. What she saw in him, I have no idea. <coughs> July 6, 1984, the raped and mutilated body of Catherine Martini. He was found at the Valley River Inn in Eugene, Oregon. Soon afterward, police arrested Michael David Lissy, Catherine's husband, of one year. A few months earlier, Lissy had taken out a large insurance policy in Catherine's life, naming himself as a sole beneficiary. That's what we call a dead giveaway, folks. Then he hired an underworld assassin to stalk and kill his wife. After one of the most sensational trials in uh, Portland history, not Portland history, actually Oregon history, Lissy was convicted, sentenced to life in prison. Now that book was a uh, Previously published as something else. <laughs> I don't remember the title, but... No, they oh, web of Deceit, sir. Web of Deceit, huh. Love, Lies, and Murder. A successful lawyer, Perry March, married the beautiful daughter of one of the most powerful attorneys in Nashville. Through his wife, Janet Perry, gets a position in his father-in-law's law firm and joined the city's social elite. The couple raised two kids in a mansion... That Janet, a talented artist, designed herself. They seemed to have the perfect life. Uh Uh-uh. 1996, Janet vanished. Police dug into Perry's past, turning up strange stories of sexual obsession, unfaithfulness, and vicious arguments with Janet. When they suspected that one of those fights ended in murder, Perry skipped town with the kids. Janet's father wouldn't let Perry escape so easily. He and his agents pursued the murder suspect to Chicago And then to Mexico, where Perry had opened a new practice and remarried. Still, it took 10 years before the desperate fugitive became trapped in his own web of deceit and betrayal. When
1: I was in college, one of my carpool mates, uh, her husband kidnapped their children and took them to Mexico. Yeah. He was, this was the first in American history of an attempt extradite a child kidnapper from a, from mexico interesting it, was it successful it took years years so it wasn't years, a kid anymore by the time they extradited years years 20 years 20 years 20 years before she could see her children again wow they had uh he had told him that uh, that she was dead
0: oh I'm thrilled about that We're talking about the pig farm murders. You know, you hear about the pig farm, you think, maybe the pig farm is just some little pig farm somewhere that's, you know, some ratty little place. No, 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 no. As was made quite clear on this show, when we had uh, the author of the book On the Farm on, uh, that was uh, quite a, uh, that was a multimillionaire. I mean, that was a very successful pig farm. It wasn't just a little dinky thing. It was a big deal. Well, they called him Uncle Willie. Yeah, it was Willie, all right. Robert Willie picked and visited the streets of Vancouver's downtown east side. And the women he picked up never came back. Rape, torture, skin him alive, feed him to the pigs. For years, police knew this was going on. In fact, they even knew about him. Because women were coming to the cops and saying, hey, listen. Uncle Willie is kidnapping women off the street. Taking them up to his pig farm. Having sex with them and then feeding them to the pigs. And the cops went, yeah, okay. Well, from what we understand from uh, our investigation and having people on the show, the cops didn't think they were qualified to investigate the case. Nor did they think that they had sufficient funds. That's right. Didn't have enough money. Didn't have enough experience. So they just let it slide. And so, I mean, we even brought up experts from the U.S. to help out. But still, like I said, they didn't have the funding. They didn't have the resources. Finally, the Canadian government put up the money. And uh, on that land okay. that made his family millions, on a squalid pig farm near a school, a condo development, a Starbucks, Robert Pickton ran a house of horrors for decades. Friends, neighbors, and community leaders came and went. Pickton committed debauchery, torture, bloodletting—just horrified. What he did to his victims was unspeakable. Although we spoke about it, and what he did to the bodies was unimaginable, but we imagined fed them it. to the pigs. Fed them to the pigs. No evidence. I remember there was one one uh, young lady who. Snuck up to the farm and peeked inside and saw, I think it was her friend's body hanging on a hook. Ran to the police and said, this is a whole new meaning of hooker. that was it. And they still didn't do anything about it. uh,
1: uh, It was uh, Steve Cameron who wrote uh, On the Farm.
0: Yeah, Stevie Cameron. She was a good guest. She's very famous up in Canada. Mm -hmm. Stolen in the night. Ooh, a horrific, grisly true crime account of a child abuser and kidnapper. Of course, by Gary C. King, who we're paying tribute to today. Joseph Duncan had been convicted of raping and torturing a 14-year-old boy in Tacoma, Washington. On the Internet, he proudly boasted of his perversion. But the uh, system turned uh, Duncan loose, and no one would stop him from committing an even more horrifying act. This time, he prepared meticulously. He chose his getaway car, he chose his murder weapon, loaded a video camera. Then when he saw a young Shasta and Dylan grown playing outside their Idaho home, he struck, he killed their mother and her boyfriend and their older brother and vanished into the night with the two younger kids. Detectives poured over the bloody murder scene. The FBI scrambled to find the children and the abductor. What a horrifying story. And even when Duncan was finally located, the story was not over yet. Dylan was still missing. And the depth of one man's evil was still coming horribly to light. Whoa, man, I'm glad I didn't write that book. Cause when you write these books, you have to really, really yes, sir, get into it. You know, and everything about it. And it does take an emotional toll. This has low coffee, i will tell you. Uh, yeah, now you've written how many true crime books? Six uh, or too seven? many. <laughs> too many, according to some people. Like 20 <laughs> of these things. It had to take its toll. Oh, yeah, does. That, that's why I, I do comedy in, in my spare time, why I like to do radio, hang out with Magic Matt, until he becomes psychotic. And <laughs> <laughs> I've been here before. Divorce can be violent. Did you know that?
1: Uh, yes, well, it you usually is.
0: Darren Mack had it all. A beautiful home in Reno, Nevada. Lovely wife, three kids, million-dollar business. Sounds like everything's fine to me. Then his wife, Charlotte filed for divorce, winning a large settlement in a heated courtroom battle. According to friends, Mac was angry. They had no idea how angry he was. And this guy, he'd be a woman, if he was a woman, he'd be unsnapped. Over the next year, the rage and testified. Finally, Darren Mack snapped, stabbing, and killing his ex wife right there in his own condo. Hours later, he stalked and shot their divorce judge in broad daylight. Before the blood had even cooled and law enforcement could react, he fled to Mexico, evading police hot on his trail. Now, uh, this case made headlines nationwide, propelled by lurid details of Mack's wild swinger lifestyle the shocking discovery of explosives in his apartment and the chilling prophetic remark made by his wife. Someday he's going to kill me. Catching him was the hardest part. Let's see, another guy goes off to Mexico and you have Mm to have to go back and get him. Not always eating. Dead of night, Gary C. King and Sheila Johnson worked with him on this one. Beautiful, beloved college sophomore, Brianna Denison, was home for the holidays in Reno. After a long night out, she crashed on a friend's couch. It would be the last time the child psychology major was ever seen alive. Her strangled body was found in a field nearby a month later. But Brianna was not the first victim of a murderer with a disturbing fetish and the patience to search for his favorite prey, petite, vulnerable brunettes. In unflinching detail, Gary C. King recounts the hunt for James Biela, an ex-Marine-turned-rapist-and-killer. The investigation would lead authorities to a maze of troubled relationships, crucial DNA evidence, and ultimately, a death sentence. Bringing this shocking true-life thriller to a chilling end. Murder in Hollywood. Gotta love this story. You probably know it. Her husband was Robert Blake. The award-winning star of In Cold Blood. And uh, what was that show he did with the
1: cockatoo on his shoulder?
0: Uh, Beretta. Beretta, yeah.
1: Right, and he had uh, um, where he was Pappy Boynton in World War II, the yeah. uh, ace pilot. Yeah. And Renegade. Yeah.
0: Well, she found her own fame at point-blank range, obsessed with glamour and well. She followed her dream to Hollywood and finally found fame in death. Bonnie Lee Baker's dream was to marry a movie star. Using sex and guts, the ruthless small-town blonde finally struck a rich by wedding Robert Blake, the Emmy Award-winning actor who scored with the hit show, Beretta. <coughs> you all right? <laughs> when Blake found his bride of six months with a bullet in her head outside a Los Angeles restaurant, he was thrust back into the spotlight. And Bonnie Lee was exposed for the manipulative woman she was, a grifter with a sordid criminal history of sex swindles, credit card fraud, and social security scams. But her specialty was fleecing wealthy men for quick cash, a lucrative sting that finally bought Bonnie Lee Bakley to Hollywood to live and die among the rich and famous. Who really murdered Bonnie Lee in cold blood? How did it play into Robert and Bonnie's turbulent marriage? Was she a victim of her own con or something more sinister? What was the truth behind her fears of being stalked? and what secrets were hidden in Bonnie's past that she found impossible to outrun. Now in this riveting, fascinating account, Gary C. King brings you the inside details. One of the most talked about homicides in contemporary history, especially Hollywood history. You know what they said about if Robert Blake didn't kill her, he should have. (laughs) That's what Hollywood was saying. She was a real piece of work. Well, we're not done yet. Gary C. King was very prolific. I think he's written more true kind books than I ever but then he started long before I did. The murder of Meredith Kircher. Now, you may ask yourself, or you can ask us, who's Meredith Kircher? Well, one morning in early November 2007, police in the beautiful Italian city of Perugia made a gruesome discovery. The body of a young English exchange student from the University of Leeds, Meredith Kircher, was found under a blood-soaked duvet in her room in a small college she shared with other students. Her throat had been cut. Meredith's flatmate, Amanda Knox, you know that name, an American also studying in Italy initially, gave evidence that it implicated Patrick Lumumba, the owner of the local bar, and he was arrested. However, Knox changed her story, claiming her memory had been affected by smoking cannabis and another man, local drifter Rudy Guede, was arrested, charged with murder, and after a fast-track trial, found guilty. But the story didn't end with his conviction. What was Amanda Knox's role on the night of the murder? Prosecutors suspected that Greed Dox and her Italian boyfriend, Solicidio, had killed uh, Meredith in a perverted sexual game that went too far. With allegations of inaccurate forensic evidence, police brutality, blackmail, and even devil worship, the trial was destined to be long and complex. Top two crime author Gary C. King presents the whole story behind the real-life courtroom drama, they made headlines around the world. What finally happened to Amanda Knox? I know that she got out. Yeah. Then they went after her again, didn't they? Yes. You look you're our fact checker. Look that up. You're brilliant. Yeah. You got a phone. <laughs> you can find Amanda out anything. Knox. Well, what which one's this one? Well, this one you can't even read the cover of the book. Out for Blood. Yep. Well, that sounds exciting. It's the, I believe
1: it's an anthology. This is the, I believe it's
0: an anthology. Oh, is it? Disturbing account of 31-year-old Joanna Denny, mother of two, man under her spell, Gary Stretch, 47, and the murder investigation that led them and others to the old Bailey for trial, a true crime short, plus 17 additional true crime stories. It was the day before Easter 2013. A man out walking his dog on a rural road near Petersboro, UK, found a dead body lying in a ditch. The grisly discovery preceded two other dead body discoveries under similar circumstances. Thus launching police on a massive countrywide manhunt for a self-mutilating female psychopath, psychopath with an affinity for knives and her seven foot three inch tall companion and accomplice. Now that's a guy that would stand out in the crowd. Yes he would. Seven foot three? Hard to hide. Before their bloody rampage was brought to an end, they'd attempt to kill two additional innocent people who likely never even gave them, never saw them coming. Now, this volume, as uh, Mark mentions, a compilation of many stories. Also includes the bizarre, compelling, and frighteningly authentic true crime stories of several headline-grabbing cases, as well as more obscure cases that received little media attention. Within these pages, you'll find stories about serial killer Andrew Erteliz, Jody Arias... Travis Alexander, random serial stabber case, a killer who wanted to be like Dexter, a blood oath murderer out of Washington State, story about a dead man who murdered two female victims, case of Portland's Motel Hell bloodbath, and several other real-life true crime dramas chosen especially for true crime aficionados about killers who mostly had one thing in common. They were out for blood. Where
1: do these people come
0: from? If I read as much true crime as I write, I'd be afraid to leave the house.
1: Uh, so throughout the knox trial history yeah um there was tremendous evidence of police ineptitude so the police were inept and not adept there was a piece of evidence a bra uh that they were using for evidence but it had been on the floor for 47 days prior to being collected what was on the floor? A bra. A bra. Yeah. Like a that bizarre. was supposed to have DNA on. it. Who's the good of several
0: people's DNA and a bra on them?
1: So well, when when they finally brought it uh, to retrial, the judge basically said, uh, no. No, no. Everything goes to a compl- an independent review, evidence review. Yeah. And when they came back, they said, uh, well, this evidence is highly contaminated. This one, there's no chain of evidence. No, chain of possession, you mean? Yeah, chain, yeah chain of possession of, for the evidence. Um, And in 2015, I believe. 21. Yeah, 2015, the Italian Supreme Court um, basically said there's no merit to this trial, and they were officially acquitted of the murders.
0: So if she had anything to do with it, she got away with it? If she didn't have anything to do if with the, it? If so. that's the case. Yeah. If that's the case. But we'll presume it is. is there's some... Countries, I'm not sure which ones are, that presume guilt.
1: Mm.
0: Now, Americans often forget. Well, that
1: would (laughs) most likely be either a Catholic or predominantly Jewish location (laughs) where guilt is the rule.
0: (laughs) I know in Israel, I don't think they have a presumed guilt. Uh, um,
1: There's an old saying that uh, the Jews invented guilt and the Catholics perfected it. (laughs) Ah, Catholics are born things to feel guilty about
0: well, the Jews feel guilty. I never could understand that. Must be guilty of something. That's what, uh, what's the the, uh, the Kafka thing where the guy turns into a cockroach? <laughs> uh, the trial by Franz Kafka was made into a movie by Orson Welles and he uh, put Anthony uh, Perkins in the starring role. Now, in, in the book, in the story, you presume he's innocent. And so uh, Perkins says to Welles, uh, I'm playing this like I'm innocent, aren't I? Wells says, Hell no, you're guilty of something. <laughs> There's a whole different take on it. Boy, if Orson Welles was alive today, his life would be so much easier. He spent all of his time trying to get enough money to buy film and getting little odds of them pieces of film left over from other productions. If he were alive today, he could use videotape, digital, he could have made so many more movies. Born at the wrong time. You know, Matt Allen and I have only uh, are, have a connection to Orson Welles.
1: You didn't know that, did you? Well, I did. Well, you do know that. I know that <clears throat> that Matt met him at the Magic Castle when he first came out.
0: And he didn't know who Orson Welles was except the guy who did wine commercials. <laughs> and he gave Orson Welles advice, which was very nice of him. Because yes, had Orson. he known who Orson Welles was, he may have been too intimidated to offer advice. He didn't
1: specifically give the advice. Orson Orson was in the theater sit with Matt was sitting next to him the speaker of the microphone and they, and Orson they uh, the act had a song played and Orson was thinking you know may, that might not be the best song and Matt provided an opinion on what song to pick.:
0: see I always thought that uh, Matt said he'd seen the guy do it differently before maybe maybe the two stories blend together and come out the same so uh, Wells I guess took. Matt's uh, information. Well, I think, you know, Matt could tell us the answer to that question because he was actually there Yes. Well, and, and when Beans, the is about Matt Allen. Uh, he could dead. tell us the actual story. Matt, tell us the true story. Matt's always been a precocious bastard. <laughs> yeah, he always has been. If it's not one thing, it's another. I'm only here so I can check out the mic. <laughs>
1: oh,
0: yeah. Not digging it. Okay, ah. he doesn't like the sound of his microphone. He's such a perfectionist. Well, he's a professional
1: broadcaster.
0: Broadchaser, yes, yes he is. I also like the story where Matt calls off the wedding at the during the rehearsal. <laughs> 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 that's that, my... that's an,
1: that has nothing to do with horses. Nothing to do so with true what's, crime. What's that's... your brush with greatness? My brush me. with greatness? Yes, you, your brush with uh, with Mr. Wells.
0: Well, I think Matt, Matt's back. He's back. Okay. Is he, is he going to tell us this story? I don't know. Huh? We don't know. We'll find out. We'll, well find he's out. He's trying to make his microphone sound good. Yeah. He's, and he's is not being successful. He, what, what is your story? My story is that Orson Welles uh, had a film called F for Fake. And uh, he wisely hired <laughs> me <laughs> and Terry McManus. Right to write, voice, and produce the uh, radio campaign for his film. He, of course, had to approve it. Well, having a radio production approved by Orson Welles, is <laughs> rather daunting, especially as we made fun of him and, uh, and uh, Joseph Cotton and Elmer. who is Elmir, world's greatest art forger. Uh, but he approved it, loved it, and uh, used it. And so that was, uh, I didn't get to meet Welles personally, but I did get paid, and uh, <laughs> Wells uh, used uh, that uh, advertising. And I got a call from Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, I had a nice chat with him. He put together F uh, uh, for Fake on uh, on video, uh, on video on DVD, for Criterion Collection, I believe. And he included the uh, trailer for the film which Wells made, and he said it had never been used, but I knew better, so I got hold of him, and I said, yes, it did get used. And I told him the circumstances, and I sent him a copy of the radio campaign, for which Bogdanovich was very grateful. What I was grateful for is when he sent out his uh, email about the project, he didn't cover up the emails of all the other people he sent it to. <laughs> so I wound up with the emails of every famous person in Hollywood. Which I misplaced, of course, on purpose, to avoid the temptations inherent in that knowledge. But, uh, anyway, that's that's my Orson Welles story, and I'm sticking to it. Did you get to meet Joseph Cotton, however, or uh, any of those other exciting people?
1: Well, did you get uh, to meet uh, Joseph uh... Campbell? No.
0: Yeah. <laughs> did you meet Joseph Campbell? No. any I... other Josephs. No. <laughs> Do I get to meet anybody named Joseph? I, I think so. In the times of my life, I've met a bunch of average Joes. <laughs> uh,
1: so when, um, when, you, when you approach, at the age. moment, when you approach... <laughs> I right, approach death,
0: which could be any minute.
1: When okay. you approach writing a true crime book, you basically just call Frank C. Gerardo. And, and they write say, it for Go me. Go for
0: it. <laughs> Go for it, Frank. Well, see, here's the deal. When I was in the Pacific Northwest, I knew everybody, and everybody knew me. And if, uh, if I wanted information, I knew who to call. I knew the movers, the shakers, the Baptists, the Quakers. Uh, but when I came down here, I didn't. They didn't. I couldn't just call up some detective and say, tell me everything or get uh, information. But Frank C. Gerardo Jr., uh, former editor of the Pasadena Star News and well-known uh, true crime buff, who had already written at least one true crime book that got Basically ripped off by somebody else who made more money on the story, but quoted him throughout. Uh, this guy was so connected, and he was a brilliant writer. I said, if I can get this guy to be my co-author, he can do all the stuff I can't do because he's got all the connections. And boy, was I right! Excellent. Yeah, man, I picked the right one. I'll tell you that. So you have you have three items on the burners right now. Well, I got three, three out, of three on the burner. Uh, the book that Frank and I are finishing up. Now, which is going to probably get a new title. It was originally titled uh, "To Live and Lie in, in uh, Hollywood" or "To Live and Lie in L.A." Someone else is using that title for podcast or something. Uh, it's probably going to have a different uh, title, but we. Well, it's kind
1: of a clever uh, twist on "To Live and Die in L.A." Yeah, well, this is one of my favorite uh, great film, film war
0: movies. Very good film, especially the driving backwards, uh, driving the wrong direction on the freeway. Well, I,
1: I I'm still kind of upset at the end of the film, end of the
0: movie I don't remember the end I just remember the well, car chase on the freeway
1: it uh it was disappointing for the loss of character
0: oh who
1: we didn't think should have died
0: well, that just goes to show us a surprise uh, yeah well,
1: but it's not supposed to piss your off. well no
0: that's the worst case of that. I got to tell this story. Is Sliver, starring Sharon Stone and what's his name? Uh, He's really good actor. Keaton? No. no. Uh, in any event, when they screened the film, which followed the book fairly closely, the audience didn't like it. So they changed the ending and had a different person be the bad guy than originally was. So then they had to kind of change the middle. <laughs> right, but they didn't change the first third of the film. So all William the and all the little plot points, all the things that presage the future, all the little drop-ins that pay off later in the movie, weren't there anymore.
1: And <laughs> made the movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, the movie made no sense, but that's not unusual. And the worst-case scenario would be bon- Vanity of the Bonfires. Oh, God, that was horrible. Did you read the book about that?
1: The book about the movie? Or the, yes, or the, the book,
0: book about the movie and why it got so screwed up. Uh,
1: fascin- uh, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Well, if, if you think about it, it's like trying to do a film of Naked Lunch. Yeah. It's just really, really difficult. Um, I was so impressed with the Coen brothers when they did No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Which was even, which is just as difficult. No,
0: I never read the book. Is there a book on it? Yes, the book was tremendous. I would imagine it would be tremendous. The other challenge would be making a movie out of the French Lieutenant's Woman by John Fowles, which they did, and that wasn't easy to do. So they made it a movie about making a
1: movie out of the
0: French Lieutenant's Woman. One of the
1: things that, uh, as an outsider, I perceive is that that there's very little courage behind the productions of movies. Which is why I was so impressed with Danny DeVito when he made *War of the Roses*. Yeah. Because the ending is so bleak. Well, yeah, it's not. That you don't walk but out whistling perfect. the theme. It's perfect when the when the chandelier collapses as designed, and they're Correct. both dying. And yeah, it. Throws and laughing. she and, and he and he says to her, "You, you cut the wire, the, the chain." She goes, "Yes." He said, "Nice touch." <laughs> and then he reaches for her hand, and she pushes it away. Yeah,
0: yeah, I thought that was great. Dead in the book? <laughs> uh, I that's a, that I don't know. I don't know.
1: But yeah, that that you know, you, you to end the movie with everyone dead.
0: Yeah, well, it's kind of like a zombie movie. <laughs> uh, the best, probably, uh, book to movie still would be To Kill a Mockingbird because it's just like the book.
1: Uh, Articus Finch. And, yeah. uh, I have, um, a couple of
0: box sets. That came a couple of box sets? they are they it from one box to another?
1: Uh, well, yeah, one, one was the DVD and the other one
0: was the Blu-ray. Ah. That reminds me my, my, uh, personal friend, Barbara Cream, who loves West Side Story. She has two DVD box sets of that. <laughs> yeah, I have the
1: uh, Blu-ray box set. That Steven down,
0: Spielberg's so. doing right. a new version of that. Um. Woo! We're being electrocuted by calls, Matt but, Allen. Stupid, stupid stupid no idea. reason to remake No reason to remake it. Whoa, man, a man of shevitz. What happened? Oh, the... A
1: little static. Yeah. I, did you run the sequel to Kill a Mockingbird?
0: Well, it's not really a sequel. It's kind of an early no, version.
1: No, actually, it was. it's post. Post. Oh. Because, you know, a lot of people like me were pissed that the, the young boy was killed off well, of course not in the book
0: not in the book no
1: well, he was dead when the book starts oh when it starts.
0: so it's flashback
1: yeah well then the whole the whole thing you know is that he came to live with them oh i
0: think mean, boo Radley should go live with you <laughs> no. match made in heaven no.
1: okay <laughs> uh an undisclosed amount of matt's money un- you can name in the film who played the An underclosed amount of,
0: of whose money?
1: Matt's. Matt's money, like Matt
0: Allen? Yeah. yeah. It's a nickel. An underclosed amount of Matt's money? That'd be mad, 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 mad world. No. <laughs> <laughs> who
1: who was the actor who played the purported killer?
0: The, who, what movie is based to on Matt Allen? Albert.
1: The Killer Mockingbird? Yes, the name is Brock. I can't understand what he's saying. I'm saying... Yes, that uh, it's one of my favorite films, and uh, I've what, what, I acting in it. I watched Mad, Mad,
0: Mad, 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 Mad World again recently, and I remember the great joy of bringing uh, Arnold Stank's partner to LR Radio <laughs> from the movie. That Did was Arnold huh?
1: Did Arnold Stank? Arnold?
0: I should have. Brought, I didn't bring Arnold. I brought his buddy. No, I think you. No, I didn't bring Arnold Stang. I brought the other guy. What's his name? My mind just went blank. Well, he was uh, he was running the... Um, AFTRA. He was president of AFTRA at the time. Yeah. And a good friend of Judy Faye's. And we used to go over to his place all the time on Christmas and stuff. We'd get together. By the way, who was Judy married to? Slowly I turned. Yeah, his name. Joey Faye. Okay. Yeah, he did. Slowly, I turned, which is actually entitled "The Kind Man." Niagara Falls. <laughs> <He knows. laughs> yeah, the title of that bit is "The Kind Man." The reason slowly why,
1: I turned because at the beginning,
0: step. the guy who tells the story says, "You look like a kind Inch man spy," <laughs> <him. laughs> and he also Flugel Street, which I saw done on Avenue Costello. So the uh, the Stooges uh, ripped that off from some No, well, no, they, I mean he, he he wrote it, he created it, and they just did it. You know, it's a famous bit. It's been done by lots of people. And uh, I think the last film Joey was in was Once Upon a Time in America. The casting call went out and said they wanted the Joey Faye type. And so Joey Faye himself sees that we want a Joey, uh, Joey Faye type. So Joey Faye shows up, goes, hello, I'm Joey Faye. And they said, you're not what we're looking for. <laughs> this gets back to the director. Who was that, uh? Of course, he's <laughs> he goes, wait a second, the real Joey Faye came in? Get him back. So, the real Joey Faye got to play the character that was Joey Faye type. Exactly. And uh, his wife, uh, his wife uh, Judy Faye, was actually in a scene also, a uh, rather comedic scene that wound up on the cutting room floor, but they, didn't, they shoot it. That show this. Thanks for being with us today on True
1: Crime Uncensored. We'll be back uh, any minute. <laughs> no, maybe next week. Maybe next week. Do you think we have an actual guest? Yeah, I think we have an actual guest. Wow. Yeah, we're What getting... a concept.
0: Yeah. Well, sometimes it's entertaining just to listen to us babble away like idiots. Uh, no, no. Hey, well, ask me what's next.
1: Hey, Pearl. Yeah. What's next?
0: Magic, Matt Allen, and the Demons of Decadence, as many of them are, probably drunken uh, brother Marty and uh, Ralph Odierna, who's still waiting for them to bring back the Negro Leagues and separate them from the uh, Integrated oh, Leagues. No. He's still upset about them having a toll-free hotline for rape
1: victims. (laughs)
0: That's the one that really pissed me off. Wow, that's harsh. Yeah, that was harsh. Anyway, they'll be on in just a matter of moments here on AlephRadioLive.com.